Another week, another Trump indictment. We'll discuss why this one may be the most important yet. And many young men are playing video games more than ever. Is this good, bad, or neither? And then a fight is raging over a religious charter school in Oklahoma. We'll unpack the state's thorny First Amendment debate. All of this and more on The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everyone. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Ricky, well, we planned to talk about the Hunter Biden situation today, but former president is hogging the spotlight. Yes. And I promised to the caller who called yesterday or Tuesday to ask for this segment. I promise Hunter Biden's coming next week, but we'll do it more justice if we don't do both sides of our banana republic debate in one single episode. So keep oh the voicemails coming, Oh my God, the coming, false though. equivalency. <laughs> I could already feel the false equivalency, but keep no, going. there's no equivalency. Keep going. It's keep just both sidesism. Um, but keep sending us voicemails, 321-200-0570. And without further ado, let's hear from Special Counsel Jack Smith on what exactly is going on with this indictment. Good evening. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. The indictment was issued by a grand jury of citizens here in the District of Columbia, and it sets forth the crimes charged in detail. I encourage everyone to read it in full. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. So Jack Smith's new indictment on Trump, which is being filed in D.C., is accusing him of undermining democracy through attempts to overturn the election by derailing the transfer of power. Um, it includes four federal felonies, including obstruction and three conspiracy counts, um, and accuses him of, quote, dishonesty, fraud, and deceit. It's a 45-page indictment. It it lists six co-conspirators, um, five of whom are I- identifiable. There's a sixth that uh, we're not so sure about. But some of the, the biggest top-line uh, revelations and accusations here are that he was um, lobbying state officials to hunt for voter fraud, working with conspirators to stand up substitute electors in seven states, and also trying to persuade uh, Mike Pence that he had the power to refuse the count on electoral votes. Yeah. And Ricky, I think this is by far the most substantive and important of the indictments against Trump yet. I think the documents case in Florida is more airtight from a perspective yeah, of the I evidence that they that. have and the, how specific the statute is. But I think this is more central to the critique of Trump's view of the rule of law. And I think it's probably going to go down if this thing makes its trial, which I think it may it may go down as the most important case in American history since probably Marbury versus Madison. And what's fascinating about this before we even get to the law and the facts is the posture of this case. So when we talked about the the documents case, we went through the, the law and everything saying, basically, this is a pretty tough case for Trump, but he had a judge that he appointed and that had ruled favorably for him in the past. And he had a Miami jury, which would be better for Trump than say a Manhattan jury, or in this case, a DC jury. So 
uh, number one, the jury is likely to be less sympathetic to Trump than down in Miami, even as this is a tougher case given the statute uh, and the facts for Trump. Mm-hmm. Second is that this judge is not a great draw for Trump. So the judge here is U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin, who's a former public defender, is a 2014 Obama appointee. She had previously ruled against the Trump White House in claims of executive privilege when they tried to withhold documents related to January 6th. And she's been the toughest sentencing judge on the D.C. federal court for January 6th defendants, according to the Washington Post. Through mid-June, she'd sentenced every one of the 31 defendants who've come before her to at least some jail or prison time. And she's even exceeded the prosecutor's sentencing recommendations nine times. So she is somebody who is not going to be favorable to him. Yeah, the only judge to do that. Yeah, so this is not a good draw for Trump. So in in a weird sense, he got the best draw possible down in in Florida, and he got the worst possible draw up in D.C. And I think this is going to be a tough case for him, uh, but I do think this is very untested in part because we've never really had a president before do the kinds of things that Trump has done. And I think you know, you talked about this. We can go through a lot of the charges. I think the biggest one is conspiracy, which is under 18 U.S.C. 371. This is kind of a go-to charge for federal prosecutors. And count one of this conspiracy charge uh, charges Trump with uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States by obstructing and defeating the lawful counting of votes and certification of the election. And this is, in many ways, uh, the predictable charge because um, the inevitable argument from Trump is going to be a First Amendment Uh, argument and conspiracy, I think, goes right to the heart of the First Amendment concerns. Yeah. Well, one thing that's interesting from the actual indictment itself is that it concedes that he has, quote, a right like every American to speak publicly about the election and even claim falsely that there is that there had been outcome determinative fraud. But they're saying that he broke the law when he acted on those lies. So I think there is a, a hurdle in terms of demonstrating that he absolutely knowingly believed that this was all untrue. Because I think if there's one thing we know about Trump, it's that he can live in his own universe quite often. And so at one point in time, they do actually use the word knowingly in the indictment. And so I think this is going to be the biggest hurdle is how do you say that Trump 100% did not believe what he was saying or did not actually imagine that this was all a reality? Like, Do you anticipate that that will be a problem for them? Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on what uh, Jack Smith has. And, and here's what we do know. One, and so so the two defenses. One is that he believed what he was saying. Now, there's a couple issues with that, but I'll get to those. And the second is the First Amendment concerns, which we'll come back to. But on the, he believed what he was saying. He still has an obligation to go through proper channels, right? Like if I thought that, you know, for instance, I was wrongfully accused of a crime, if I then try to break out of prison, I'm still liable for that. Like you could still charge me for breaking out of prison, right? So it's like, even if you feel like you've been wronged, you have to follow the law in pursuing those challenges. So I don't think this is the airtight defense that people think it is, even if Jack Smith isn't able to prove that Trump knew he was lying. But there is some evidence, you know, and obviously this is an indictment document. Jack Smith doesn't have to show everything he has, but there's a few things in there that stand out to me. Number one is that in the indictment, it reveals that Pence told Trump that he understood the laws of the land, that there was no constitutional authority invested in the vice president to make such a move. And then Trump allegedly told Pence, uh, quote, you're too honest. 
So, uh, you know, you can imagine in trial, you'd have Pence on the stand, you'd be like, well, what was he referring to? And if Trump doesn't exercise his Fifth Amendment rights, you can ask him about that. There's also paragraph 66 of the indictment that Trump directed fraudulent electors to convene sham proceedings, to cast fraudulent electoral ballots in his favor. Paragraph 31 quotes an audio recording of Trump to Secretary of State Raffsenberger in Georgia, where Trump is asking for a very precise number of votes. Let's go to that clip to remind our audience of this one. Look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. So, you know, obviously Trump's lawyers would be like, he just wanted to find the votes he felt like were cast his way. I mean, I think we can people can interpret that clip whichever way they want. But I do think this this is going to be, this is, you know, they, there's a saying in sports, like this is why you play the game. In this case, I look at this and say, this is why you have a trial, which is to say, all right, like let's lay it bare and find out. But, but once again, I don't think the prosecutors need to show that Trump knew he was lying. All they need to show is that even if he believed that he had won, that he broke the law in trying to, um, you know, drum up fraudulent electors, pressure as vice president and Department of Justice, et cetera, to overstep the law. And, you know, the Pence, I was expecting Pence to be a little bit evasive when asked about this, but he came in kind of hot when he was asked about this yesterday. Uh, This is going to be a little bit more of an extended clip for our audience. And the reason why we're playing a little bit longer of a clip is because this is the vice president of the United States talking about this and probably the lead witness in the case. And so, Uh, I think it's really important to hear what Pence is saying here. So let's go to this clip. By God's grace, uh, I believe we did our duty that day. Fulfilled the oath that I'd taken to the Constitution and to the American people. And the Constitution is quite clear about the role of the vice president in the counting of electoral votes. It essentially says the vice president presides over a joint session of Congress where the electoral votes that are certified by the states shall be opened and shall be counted. And irrespective of the indictment, I I want the American people to know that I had no right to overturn the election. And then on that day, President Trump asked me to put him over the Constitution. But I chose the Constitution, and I always will. I mean, I I really do believe that uh, anyone who puts themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. And anyone who asks someone else to put themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States again. I've been very forthright about this issue, and I'll continue to be. Now, with regard to the substance of the indictment, I've been very clear. I had hoped it wouldn't come to this. I had had hoped that uh, uh, this issue and the judgment of the president's actions that day would be left to the American people. But now it's been brought uh, in a criminal indictment, and I, uh, I can't assess whether or not the government has the evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt what they assert in the indictment, and the president's entitled to a presumption of innocence. But for my part, I want people to know that I had no right to overturn the election uh, and that uh, what the president maintained that day and frankly has said over and over again over the last two and a half years is completely false. And, it, and it's contrary to what our Constitution and the laws of this country provide. You know, I'm a student of American history. And the first time I heard in early December, somebody suggested as vice president, I might be able to decide which votes to reject and which to accept, I knew that it was false. Our founders had just won a war against a king. And the last thing they would have done was vest unilateral authority in any one person to decide who would be the next president. I dismissed it out of hand, but sadly, the president was surrounded by a group of crackpot lawyers 
that kept telling him what his itching ears wanted to hear. And while I made my case to him of what I understood my oath of the Constitution to require uh, the president ultimately, uh, ultimately, you know, continued to demand uh, that I choose him over the Constitution. And so in this moment, irrespective of how this case plays out, I, I want the American people to know that I believe with all my heart that by God's grace, I did my duty that day. I'm surprised that you're surprised by this response, to be honest, because I'm not at all. Um, firstly, because his like contemporaneous journaling was a large part of the indictment in terms of actual new revelations beyond what we've already seen with like the January 6th committee. Um, but also because it benefits him politically. I mean, it's not like he's in some sort of position where he's vying for some sort of cabinet pick. If Trump becomes the nominee, he's certainly that ship has sailed for him. And I, I mean, if he has any chance of actually winning the primary election, it's on the fact that he comes out looking very good on this front. I'm, still think that this and every other charge brought against Trump actually is increasing his odds of becoming the Republican nominee. Um, but if I'm Pence or if I'm advising Pence, I say, absolutely lean into this because this is pretty much your only shot to dethroning Trump from the primary election. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I, I look at this from his electoral calculations, because remember, this is a guy who unilaterally by his own admission could have stayed as vice president if he had done what Trump was asking him to do. So if he was a power hungry, you know, totally Machiavellian figure, he could have easily just done what Trump was asking of him and forget cabinet post, he would have been vice president. And so like, and there's also the, you know, the point where like he at every stage of this could have sucked up to Trump and been that sort of Trump alternative that DeSantis has tried to be, Vivek has tried to be, et cetera. So like there, there is a clear electoral path for Pence other than being forthright against Trump. The, the second part of this is what Pence is saying by all accounts is verifiably true. You know, there's, there's very little evidence that Pence has lied about anything, whereas there's plenty of evidence that Trump has. And so like, he's either lied or has been recklessly disregarding the truth. And so when I look at Pence, I'm like, this is a pretty credible figure, but we don't have to stop at Pence. This is the vice president, right? Well, what do other cabinet members have to say? Maybe the top lawyer in Trump's administration as he you know, rounded out his second term, Bill Barr. So when Bill Barr was asked about the First Amendment claim that Trump is making, this is what Bill Barr had to say. As a legal matter, I don't see a problem with the indictment. I think uh, that it's not an abuse. The, the uh, Department of Justice is not acting uh, to weaponize the department by proceeding against the president for a conspiracy to subvert the electoral process. Which is what Trump's attorneys are saying. And they're also saying that he was just exercising his First Amendment right here. Do you think that's a valid argument in your view? No, I really don't think that's a valid argument because, you know, as the indictment says, you know, he, he, they're, they're not attacking his First Amendment right. Uh, he can say whatever he wants. He can even lie. He can even tell people that uh, the, the election was, was stolen when he, when he knew better. But that does not protect you from entering into a conspiracy. All conspiracies involve speech and all fraud involves speech. Free speech doesn't give you the right to engage in a fraudulent conspiracy. This is his attorney general and his vice president. I mean, obviously, this is not the end of it. You can go through many members of his administration, as I think Brett Baer did on, on Fox, and talk about the sort of rifts that have existed. But these are not 
figures who, you know, th- this is not, you know, General Mattis, who like from basically from the get-go was at odds with Trump. Like Barr carried a lot of water for Trump, including on the Mueller investigation. And Pence was a fairly loyal vice president. Like to me, this seems notable. And a few things that I think, um, just to pour a little cold water on the newness of a lot of what's coming out of this indictment and things that are notably not there that I think it's easy to assume might be based on just implication is by and large, it's it's very similar to what we already knew from the January 6th investigations. Um, a lot of Trump's personal communications are, are already very public or even public tweets. Um, there's no reference to the organization or financing of January 6th and the rally that led up to the um, riot there. There's no evidence of any consideration on Trump's part to use federal or military power to seize voting machines. And there's also no linking him to the Oath Keepers or Proud Boys or or no new connections to the riots, which I think is important. There's In terms of January 6th, it's pretty much entirely tweets and very public statements that we've already known. Yeah, I do think there's an allusion to, and remember this is an indictment, he doesn't have to show all of his evidence. That's true. There is an allusion to evidence uh, connecting him to the fake electors scheme. And so I think that that's going to be a really critical part of this because that goes to the conspiracy to defraud the American public. I think a second part of this is Jack Smith, you know, little notice now, but he issued a superseding indictment down in Florida earlier this week showing that he's quite willing to hold evidence and then come forward later on with it. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, Trump could be subject to a superseding indictment on anything you just described. Worth noting, this is the second indictment this week or set of indictments. The superseding indictment down in Florida was pretty damning. It basically alleges that the president, with some very credible evidence, destroyed video evidence and directed his staff to destroy video evidence, so basically committing ongoing obstruction of justice. And I think like in this case, where he needs to be careful with a less sympathetic judge, is that uh, if he is a free person, continually obstructing justice, he could find himself in prison in the middle of a campaign. Because if I'm a judge presiding over a case, and it's not the president, former president, and they're, they're committing obstruction of justice and ignoring the will of the court as this trial is proceeding, then any normal human being would be thrown in prison for the, the remainder of the trial. And so I think you know Trump needs to be really careful right now about what he's doing outside of this case. And if, in fact, what Smith is saying is true, is that he's, you know, seems pretty willing to obstruct justice outside of these proceedings, then this could get way more thorny, way more dicey. I also think a second part of this is that with less classified information at issue and with a judge who's less sympathetic to Trump, I think this one could move through the court system faster than the Miami case. This one could actually go to trial before that. So this one, for many reasons, I think becomes the case here. And what is your outlook on what the timeline is likely to be? Because I'd imagine that Trump would have a vested interest in pushing that down the road as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, my sense, given what we know about this this judge, is that she's going to she's going to lay down a pretty aggressive timeline uh, for this trial. Now, Trump's team is going to push back on that timeline, and they always have the avenue of appeal. And I don't know enough about the various motions that they're going to file and how appealable those motions are. Because by and large, what gets appealed are, are issues of law, not fact, right? So the motion stage is often subject to appeal. But the problem, the, the thing that's going to come into effect here is, is so much of what is going to happen between these two parties is going to be 
novel area of law because the unique circumstances of this case. And the second part of it is so much of the probability of success on appeal comes down to the the three judge draw that they get on the court of appeals, which is totally random, just like this selection was random and the canon selection is random. And I, yeah, I just don't know. My sense is we're going to see this trial before we see the Miami trial. That's just my guess. But I don't know. I mean, Trump also, there's so much legal activity with Trump. There's a couple other notable things here. One is his campaign, uh, his, his legal team tried to get the a, a Georgia judge to basically throw out the Georgia case, uh, and they refused to, and basically said there wasn't there isn't even an indictment yet, so there's nothing to throw out. That was one other notable, uh, you know, sort of piece of news this week on the Trump legal front. The second, and I think really underreported story, is that Trump's campaign is is essentially broke. Like so, they, Trump's uh, committees had reported their fundraising numbers. And essentially, they're basically money in, money out. And they started in a commanding financial position at the beginning of this year and basically have spent everything down in part because of these legal costs. So that's really notable. You know, DeSantis and Scott are basically in more commanding financial positions than Trump. Now, is that going to wind up mattering in the primary? Definitely not, uh, according to the polls that we've seen. But it's just notable to say, like, you know, just at the beginning of these legal proceedings, he's spending down so much money, you know, ostensibly on lawyers. That could only become more of an issue as this goes on. Yeah. Although I agree with you that I don't think that it's going to meaningfully impact his primary possibilities. Although my boy Vivek is pulling into third place, it seems pretty uh, Is pretty he? slowly but steadily. He's yeah, he's he's bumping up there he's he's been in the double digits a couple times recently um slow but steady and and well funded by like a plurality of first-time gop donors actually like small money donors which i think is pretty interesting it was something like 40 percent had never given to a gop candidate before so pulling from a different crowd and you know what he's got that a lot of the candidates don't have is the ability to self-fund also you know he's attracting a lot of grassroots attention i think he's you know, my my opinions on his beliefs aside, he is running a very effective campaign, uh, as we've talked about before. And yeah, I, I agree he's one to watch. I always, I, I've always thought Tim Scott too is somebody to watch, but obviously Trump is su- in such a commanding position right now that it's hard to imagine him not, not moving forward in this primary, but there is plenty of time before the votes are cast. Who knows? You never know. Who knows? What a fun vision of the future of someone running from their basement and someone running from prison. Awesome. He's that okay. This basement thing. I'm gonna. Well, I'll wait till Tuesday when we talk more about Biden. But Biden, it has not been in his basement for a long time. They probably wish he was at this point. Look, I'll make my case on Tuesday. I think he's been doing just fine. I've been I've been critical of him in the past, but I think he's exceeded my expectations. But we'll, we'll have that debate on Tuesday. Stay tuned, everybody, on that. Stay tuned. I promise it's coming. I'm, I'm not doing my New York Post duties, the fact that we've gone this far with no Hunter Biden stuff. So it's coming. I promise. Well, Ravi, there's an interesting new statistic um, from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics in the annual American Time Use Survey that I flagged because it makes me deeply concerned about young people and especially young men. Um, But it basically is this large survey that categorizes what young people are doing with their time or people in general. And One of the categories is playing games, which I think presumably in today's day and age means video games, although I suppose you could be like 
rolling dice or something. But since just 2019 to 2022, just a couple of years, the daily amount of time on average that young men were spending playing video games ostensibly went up by 45 minutes in a single day on average, Um, which, you know, obviously the pandemic could have played a role in that. But what we're seeing is an increase and then a sustained increase post-pandemic that to me is really a concerning. I mean, that's that's like a large chunk of your waking hours. And I think that's a, a concerning sign for young men who I think by and large are struggling on a lot of important metrics right now. Yeah. And that number, that three-year period, that that 45-minute increase that you talked about is more than it had increased over the past 16 years. And the the author of this Bloomberg piece that kind of form, forms the basis of this noted that this is, you know, the, you could grasp at straws and say video games got dr- demonstrably better over that period of time, but that's a hard argument to make. That certainly doesn't seem to be the critical period in which the games got that much better. And it wasn't like they were, weren't popular. Like, I feel like Video games as a concept have been around for so long. There's nothing about the past couple of years that I think would justify them all of a sudden attracting all these new people to spend an extra hour of their day aside from like malaise. Yeah. And it seems like in particular, there's like a, this sort of 18 to 24 group is the group that's um, most at risk here. They're also the people who've had the the toughest time in the job market, but the author of this piece in Bloomberg tries to go back and forth to be like, well, what's causing what? Are the video games causing the job issues or are the job issues causing the video games? And I think she kind of settles on the latter, uh, but really not you know, stridently, uh, but has a couple of stats in here that are interesting. Like one is the share of men ages 15 to 24 spent at least some time playing games on average top 50% for the first time in 2022. So over half of 15 to 24 are playing video games every day. And among ages 15 to 24 who spent at least some time playing games, so that 50 plus percent, uh, the average time spent was 3.82 hours. 3.82 hours in a 15 to 24 group. And 8% of those played six or more hours a day. I find this so incredibly concerning, and I don't mean to sound insensitive in any way in in terms of the thesis of I mean like, be careful you're a noted men's rights advocate Ricky Schlott so you have to be <laughs> careful how you talk here you uh-huh. know you don't want to offend your base um, of course of course but no truly like it's even if we're saying oh the the joblessness is what's causing this if you're spending three four hours a day an extra 45 minutes of your day every day playing video games which I'm sorry there's no meaningful test case of how that's going to benefit you beyond maybe just a small little bit of leisure time to clear your mind. Those are hours that you're not putting your resume out there or scrolling through LinkedIn. And there's, I'm with all the job openings that we have, like, I think this is not just like, oh, this is an unhealthy habit. Like, I think this is a deeper symptom of something off in our society, especially post-pandemic with people not getting back on track in a in a meaningful way. And I'm like, I was looking at the employment numbers in New York State for all groups. And the only group that has had rising unemployment from 2020 through 2021 to 2022 in the state are young men. And it's not their female counterparts in the same age group. They looked at um, 16 to 24 year olds in terms of the unemployment rate, not just the labor force participation, because of course there's students and all that. 
And pre-pandemic, it was 11.8%, which is pretty high. But, you know, like young guys looking for jobs, sure. It's still 23.6%. So everyone else is back on track largely after the pandemic. And yet young men specifically are not. And I feel like their minds are just being like pulled in by this completely useless time suck. And these are really important fundamental years to figure out how are you going to build the building blocks of a career going forward? And how are you going to best use your time? And and how are you going to set yourself up for success? And there's an industry that's preying on the fact that young men feel dejected and the pandemic got them off, off track. And this is a horrible use of their time that I just think is going to have ripple effects for the rest of their life and throughout society as a result. Well, on the question of how useless it is, uh, 2020 Harvard Medical School did a write-up. We'll put it in the show notes to talk about, well, what are the health effects of games? And so they said, and I'm going to quote from them, quote, there is mixed research that there are some cognitive benefits to gaming, such as uh, better control of one's attention, improved spatial reasoning, though it isn't entirely clear how much these benefits extend outside of video game sphere into the real world. Uh, video games have medical applications such as training people with degenerative diseases to improve their balance, helping adolescents with ADHD improve their thinking skills, or training surgeons on how to do technically complicated operations. That's what they said on the positive side. On the negative side, they said carpal tunnel syndrome is a major issue. There's a thing called gamer's thumb or PlayStation thumb. They talk about uh, gaming associated with obesity in teens, which they seem to think is the biggest problem here. Uh, and they said it's due to the obvious phenomenon that teens are sitting in front of a TV screen for hours every day and that there is uh, a study in the Journal of Clinical Nutrition that said, quote, a single session of video game play in healthy male adolescents is associated with an increased food intake regardless of appetite sensations. And then they have an, a lengthy section that I will not go into on something called internet gaming disorder, which is a controversial designation. You could read all about it and decide for yourself whether it is a valid designation. Um, but there are some, I think somewhere like 8% or something of the population, I may be getting that number wrong, uh, who may have that disorder if you believe it is such a thing. So uh, my sense to this is people overplay just like they do the benefits of phones. They'll be like, yes, you need your phone. It's good for cognitive developments that are like, yes, of course, you could find reasons why phones can help people, but by and large, they're not being used mostly in the ways that benefit people. Uh, and so unless you're going to become a professional video gamer or something about the reaction time that you gain from playing video games, right? Or if you're playing Minecraft all the time, maybe that helps Twitch with your- streamer. Yeah, like, of course, it's it's not, like, totally useless all the time. And, of course, like, if people are playing board games all the time, we wouldn't say that's a waste of time. But the difference between board games and video games is uh, the board games are almost exclusively done socially, whereas the video games, yes, they can be done socially with somebody in a, in a different place or next to somebody, but uh, they're way more prone to isolation than a lot of these other things are. And people aren't playing board games for six hours a day. I'm sure some people are. I live above a board game cafe and there are people down there all the time. But this is not like a, an addiction. Like, obviously, I love my sellers or Catan like the next person, but I'm not fiending for it on a daily basis. Yeah. And one more angle here that I think is important is we do, it's not like a mystery of what this time is displacing because the survey asks them what they're doing in general. And as video games went up in this post-2019 period by, um, like, this is in metrics of, of of an hour, so three quarters of an hour or 45 minutes extra video games, um, working went down by about a third of an hour. So young men are demonstrably working less. 
Um, sports and exercise by about a 15 minute loss as well. So to your point about obesity, also lower, but substantive decreases in household activities, educational activities, watching TV, which negligible to me, um, socializing and sleep. So nothing good that they're missing out on, um, particularly that working and exercising are the two biggest drops um, that almost entirely complement the gain in video games, which, you know, that sounds like a formula for success. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not confident that we're going to see this data turn around anytime soon. The video games are amazing. They're getting better. We're getting the metaverse. We're getting the Apple headsets. Uh, Ricky, my prediction here is that this will uh, this will get worse. It will get more, to use your favorite word, dystopian, um, especially when we look at that Apple headset in particular. Like that thing looks awesome, especially if you're if you're one who's already in your metaphorical or actual basement playing video games in isolation anyway. Who cares whether you're you know like in that case you're going to be as immersive as you possibly can. And I think that 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 headset in particular could be a game changer. Should we talk about your passion issue, charter schools? We've covered a few sort of layers leading up to where we are today. Um, and, and I'll kick it to you in a second to kind of lay this out. But we've talked about the coach's prayer case before the Supreme Court. We'll link to that in the show notes. The uh, main voucher case, which was before the Supreme Court. We talked about the uh, Supreme Court uh, decision to basically treat charter schools as public schools in North Carolina. And we also talked about the Oklahoma, the former attorney general and how they had issued an advisory opinion, basically green lighting. What about you're about to talk about here? In Oklahoma, there is a Catholic virtual charter school that was recently approved in a three to two vote by the virtual charter school board in the state, which would be the first religious charter school period. And of course, that has attracted some uh, legal attention from a now this lawsuit with 10 plaintiffs, including the Oklahoma Parent Legislative Action Committee, which is alleging that this is violating church and state separation because it's a charter school, it's, it's pseudo-public, um, and also is alleging that it could discriminate against LGBTQ students. Um, so, you know, whether or not they would have open doors to all people as, a, as an entity that takes public funding. And also alleges that it's one piece of a larger Christian nationalist agenda to infuse Christianity into public schools, whereas defenders are saying it's time to end atheism as the state-sponsored religion. So this is a pretty stark uh, difference in opinion here. And I'm curious, Robbie, from the legal lens and also the, the former charter school background that you have, what you think the outlook of this lawsuit is. Yeah, worth mentioning on the outset that most charter school supporters do not support the school, I think in part because for the very same reasons that they wanted the Supreme Court to weigh in and say that charter schools were public schools, even if it invited more regulation in North Carolina, because uh, believers in charter schools uh, believe that charter schools are public schools, uh, in the, except in the rare exceptions where they allow private charter schools, which is uh, the vast minority of states. But taking a step back, we talked about you know way back when when the former uh, at the time it was the Oklahoma Attorney General John. O'Connor wrote a legal opinion that called Oklahoma's charter school law unconstitutional before he left office. Uh, and uh, the charter school law basically says you cannot uh, 
uh, have a religious institution as a charter school. The Constitution also creates the Oklahoma Constitution as well as the U.S. Constitution, which I'll get to create issues as well. But his successor, who was also a Republican, Gettner Drummond, uh, withdrew the opinion of his predecessor, saying, quote, it misuses the concept of religious liberty by employing it as a means to justify state-funded religion. He warned that greenlighting St. Isidore, this school, created a slippery slope that would force the state to support charter schools run by non-Christian religious institutions. So translation, he's saying, look, if you truly believe that you have to greenlight religious charter schools as a way to, like, avoid discrimination on the basis of religion, then you have to you have to basically greenlight a diversity of religions. Because if you start picking and choosing which religions are entitled to charter schools, then you're definitely uh, in violation of the Establishment Clause and the Oklahoma Constitution. Maybe a Wiccan charter school? Yeah. I mean, in particular, I think they're probably worried about madrasas, if I'm thinking about Oklahoma correctly. So that's an issue that he flags. I think he's right about that. Uh, and he also said that he believed that the genesis of efforts, he gave an interview to Politico saying this, he said the genesis of the efforts to have taxpayers pay for religious-based instruction is, quote, uh, is in Christian nationalism. Uh, he said that the, this Christian nationalism is the movement that is giving oxygen to this attempt to eviscerate the establishment clause of the Constitution. So this guy Drummond, uh, the successor, really believes that this is a problem. The governor is on the side of this religious institution. And so you're kind of, um, you've got you got different sides of the Republican establishment in Oklahoma kind of at war with each other over this issue. Yeah, it's unsurprising to me that there would be that divide because there's definitely a, um, like I think a lot of more libertarian leaning people do end up in the Republican umbrella, but this is one of those like precise issues that would divide the crowd. I'm curious if there's a world in which like they could separate the funding that they use and not apply funding to any setting in which there would be a religious, any sort of like religious course or any religious messaging. Is that something that could potentially be viable of like trying to uh, straddle that divide and just say like, oh, well, we're, we're not going to use, we'll only use private funding for any church service or whatever. Yeah, I, I would imagine that would be much more likely to withstand scrutiny. The problem is the particular school that they have here. So in its application for the charter school, St. Isidore says that it will comply, quote, with all applicable state laws and statutes to the extent the teachings of the Catholic Church will allow, and that it says it will be open to families of all faiths or no faith, but it describes its plan to teach that students, quote, who reject God's invitation will end up in hell. Uh, and according to St. Isidore's website, students must, quote, appreciate the desire and desire robust Catholic education. And students and families must have, quote, a willingness to adhere with respect to beliefs, expectations, policies, and procedures of the school. And that St. Isidore will operate, quote, in the harmony with faith and morals, including sexual morality as taught and understood by the magisterium of the Catholic Church based on, upon holy scripture and sacred tradition, end quote. The school is saying it's requiring of its students an adherence to Catholic doctrine. I went to Catholic high school. I know what this means. Uh, and so they are not the best test case for this scenario. I think this is going to be a problem for them because I think in reading the Supreme Court's main decision, and if you remember this main case, we talked about it a long, long time ago, it was about vouchers. It basically said, if you're going to make vouchers available, you can't just make them available to secular institutions if religious institutions want them. The key difference here is these are public charter schools, which as the Supreme Court later 
essentially implied in letting a lower court ruling stand is that charter schools are public institutions. They are not private institutions receiving public dollars. And the establishment clause of the United States is very clear. And if you you take a plain reading of the establishment clause and you read what St. Isidore's is doing, this is establishing a religion. This This is a state body blessing one religious institution that is very clear that it's pushing its doctrine on its students and requiring it of its people. And maybe the state would be in a better position if they blessed, if they had a policy that says we're going to bless madrasas and Hasidic institutions and atheistic institutions, et cetera. But we all know that this Oklahoma Virtual Charter School Board would not allow that to happen, will not, and has not, most importantly, allowed that to happen. And so we have a real problem here with the Establishment Clause. That's why I think this is probably not going to stand. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it's worth circling back to that last time we had a conversation about this sort of similar issue, but in the voucher context. And I come down on different sides on these two issues because to me, I only care about if the government is specifically funding or is giving the money directly to an institution that's religious by nature. I could not care less if the government gives a voucher to a parent and the parent chooses a religious institution to apply that voucher towards. In fact, I think it's actually discriminatory against parents who want to send their kids to a religious institution if the government says, oh, you can only send or use this voucher that we're giving you in a private context. I think the voucher system would circumvent this whole issue in in Oklahoma. I have no problem with individual parents deciding how money that's designated for their child is applied. I don't think that's the government imposing any sort of religion on anyone. That's somebody's choice. And if they feel that a a religious school is the best choice for them, then great. I do have a problem with this specifically because I, I don't think that they would approve the Wiccan virtual charter school. And I don't (laughs) think they should necessarily, especially with, with taxpayer funded dollars. I'd, I'd be less suspicious of it if it were more clear in how they were going to fund and, and where, where taxpayer money was going towards. I think that would be a little more permissible, but I think the precedent that this sets is not great. And if anyone in Oklahoma was, looking to find a way to solve this and somehow listening to the Lost Debate show, start agitating for a voucher system and let this virtual school take vouchers. The voucher issue is different. And and we could talk about that case again, but the thing is, it is the law of the land now that if you offer vouchers, you have to offer them also to religious institutions. So taking that as a starting point. Although that was up for debate, though, in recent history is, is what It I'm was saying. up for debate, yeah. 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 But take, taking that as a given, the difference is, in these voucher states, by and large, uh, the state isn't picking winners and losers. Whereas yep, in charter school, uh, under charter school laws, they do. And the difference is just for people who, what I said is not obvious. In a voucher state, they pass a voucher law, and then basically any private institution, by and large, can get that money. There are some regulations, but by and large, you can get it. The difference is in charter states, it is very gatekeeped. So, like in Mississippi, for example, I, for a couple of years, was one of only two institutions. I was the leader of an institution that was one of only two that was allowed in the state of Mississippi to operate charters. And till this day, I think there are only three or four in the state of Mississippi. And my my network, Republic Schools, operates half of all charter schools in the state of Mississippi. So it is heavily gatekeeped. Uh, and so the government is very much uh, putting its finger on the scales. Of, and in my case, in, in, my, in my belief, 
uh, as it relates to charters, often for good reason, is deciding what institutions deserve to run them or not. And voucher theory is very different. Voucher theory is like let a thousand flowers bloom. And to me, it's it's more amenable to a diversity of religious opinions and the state isn't going to really uh, be able to step in and stop some over others. Uh, it's also worth mentioning that this happens in the context of a lot of activity around the country. So Texas this year passed a law allowing chaplains into public schools, uh, including to replace professional counselors. Uh, as we talked about, the last year the Supreme Court sided with a football coach who was fired after praying on the 50-yard line with his players. Uh, the Supreme Court also ruled in that main case that uh, state-funded tuition vouchers must be allowed to be spent on religious schools in 2018. It sided with the church daycare that wanted a state grant to resurface its playground. And there are new laws in Idaho and Kentucky that allow teachers and other public school employees to pray in front of and even with students. Missouri and Louisiana authorized public schools to teach Bible classes. So there is a movement here on First Amendment law and jurisprudence. The question is, where is the line? I would hope and expect that this Oklahoma move crosses that line. That's my expectation. Yeah, mine as well, for sure. And we'll be sure to keep an eye on this case and keep everyone updated as more revelations come forward. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, remember to rate, review, subscribe, give us those five-star ratings or voicemails, 321-200-0570. We will be back on Tuesday. We promise to talk about the president's son, Get excited, get ready. Maybe we'll also have another indictment with Trump too. So, but even if it happens, who knows? It's we'll talk exhausting. about Hunter Biden. We'll talk about Hunter. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about Hunter Biden. <laughs>